Our glorious God, we thank you that Jesus has risen from the dead. We thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We thank you that because he lives, we too trust in him. We will live as well. And that death has no more sting over over us, any victory over us. And so we praise and magnify your name. and, And as we look into this wonderful story in your scripture that is recorded for us, may we marvel at the Savior that we have in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're looking at John 11. I won't, we're going to go through, for the most part, verse by verse. I won't take the time to, to read ahead of time. We've got to remember, as we look at, at John 11, the, the theme of the book of John. And it is, again, John tells his theme, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that many more signs Jesus did uh, in order that they may know that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you might have eternal life. That is the theme we've seen chapter after chapter in the book of John. These signs, what was the purpose of these miracles? They were to create a sense of awe, of wonder. They were signs because the miracle pointed to something else. What? Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Now, Jesus' miracles we have seen have been quite amazing, but we're about to see it really gets amazing here, recorded in John 11. We saw that Jesus demonstrated that he was the bread of life when he fed the 5,000 men, women, and children with five uh, loaves of bread and two fish. We see that Jesus, when he healed the blind man who'd been uh, blind from birth, Jesus is the light of the world. And we're going to see when he raises his dear friend Lazarus from the dead, he demonstrates he is the resurrection and the life. Now we're told in, in this portion of scripture that <clears throat> Lazarus lived in a village called Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And uh, this family had been very special to Jesus. We're told in verse two of our text in John 11 that uh, Mary will be the one here in the next chapter we're gonna look at, she will be the one who will anoint Jesus's feet and then wipe uh, his feet. She'll anoint him with this, great expensive perfume and then wipe his feet with her hair. And uh, this actually, this act is told in, in, Matt, in uh, Matthew 26, 13, uh, and that Jesus said that when she does this, her name will live in per, uh, perpetuity as long as the world for that act of what she did. We're going to see that, um, that according to Luke chapter 10, that Jesus in his visits going from Galilee to Judea, he, uh, he spent time. He would stop and spend time at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And so they showed great hospitality to Jesus and the disciples. And one of the two sisters, Mary, was most likely, probably of the two sisters, we could probably say, we're going to see that Jesus loved both sisters. But there was something special about Mary. If you recall in the story that when Jesus was in the home of Lazarus and the two sisters, that Martha, she was very busy and she was was upset that Mary was sitting at the feet listening to Jesus teach and not helping her. And Martha came and complained to Jesus, you know, can't you get your, uh, my sister to help me? And, and Jesus basically lovingly sort of, I guess, rebuked in a loving way. Martha says, well, Mary has chosen the better, better part. 
And, um, but we're told in verse three, if you look there in, in John 11, the two sisters therefore were sent to him because he was sick. He was very sick. And it says, behold, he whom you love is sick. So that, that's no minor thing when it says that this is one whom Jesus loved. He doesn't say that that often in the scriptures. We're told uh, John himself says there was a disciple whom Jesus loved, referring to himself. And uh, we know that there was something. Uh, so why would it say that Jesus loved this? Because they were special to him. He, uh, they were special to him. Not only do they would show hospitality to him, but Jesus, remember, he is the God-man, and he knows the hearts of, of men. And he could see into the heart of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He knew what they were like. And so there was a special attachment that he had to this family. And we, we see that the two sisters, when they hear that Jesus is from a distance, they send their messengers uh, to Jesus and saying, you need to come, our brother is, is very sick. And it's, a, um, it's an endearing message. They said, because they say the one whom you love is sick. So <clears throat> they are convinced, Mary and Martha are convinced that if Jesus is present, Lazarus is gonna be okay. And that's why they're asking him to, to come. Now from verse four, there's an indication that when the, the messengers arrive, Jesus already knew that Lazarus was very sick. Well, how did he know that? Well, again, he's God uh, in the flesh. And two days later, we're going to see that Lazarus is going to be dead. But it, what Jesus says in verse 4 is, is very significant. I don't want us to miss that. Look what he says in response to the message that Lazarus is very sick. He says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So he says, this illness is not leading to death. Well, what, when Jesus said that, it's not because Jesus didn't know that it would lead to death. What he's meaning is that the final outcome of this illness is not going to be death. That's not going to be the final outcome. So Jesus says that Lazarus's illness was what for what purpose? For the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. Again, what's the purpose of the miracles? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But in order for this glory to be magnified, Lazarus has got to die. And when Jesus said this, the indication is Lazarus was not yet dead, but Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to Lazarus, and Jesus knew already what he was about to do for Lazarus, though, it, though it, nobody else understood or knew. And it's interesting there in verse 5 that John interjects that Jesus also loved Mary and Martha, uh, which in verse six may explain why Jesus deliberately delayed. He deliberately delayed until Lazarus was dead. And uh, why wait? Why wait until Lazarus was dead? because the glory of God was going to be manifested like no one had ever seen before. So, <clears throat> yeah, if he had showed up, he could help someone. But let me ask you this, which is greater, to heal somebody who's been sick, as amazing that is, or raise them from the dead? Yeah, raising them from the dead. And so what we see here... Uh, let me bring this important point out for us all at this point. There are times in our lives that 
we think that something should take place to bring the most glory to God, right? We're just sure if, if God does this, it's going to bring the most glory. When in reality, we don't know that for sure, do we? And oftentimes, maybe you've experienced that. I don't know, more than likely. Has there been an occasion where you thought this would really be amazing if God did this? But he didn't do that. But he did something greater. And you you sit back and go, wow, it was better for God to have done it this way than what I had thought. And so that's what we see here with, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Oh, Jesus, if you'd been here our brother, he, he would have been okay. But Jesus had something more wonderful in mind. So we we're told in verse 7 here that Jesus delays and he says, let us go to Judea. He knew Lazarus was dead. He said, it's time to go to Judea. And what... What's noteworthy here in verse 8, his disciples says, now, Jesus, you sure you want to do that? Because you don't necessarily want to do that because the Jews in Jerusalem are out to kill you. They are, they are actively seeking to stone you to death. And so they're trying to encourage him not to go. And look what Jesus' response to the, the disciples in verse 9. He says here, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In one sense, what Jesus is saying, I I have a mission and I have a certain amount of time that has been allotted to me to accomplish God the Father's purpose for sending me to this world. And also we're told that Jesus talks about it. And if you and I, if we submit to the plan of God, his decrees, we're going to see that we're often better off for it. You know, the Psalm 119, 105 says, thy word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. We all have have a certain amount of time to do the work for our heavenly father. Jesus had an amount of time So he says, I'm working during the day. Well, verse 11 says that Lazarus has fallen asleep. And Jesus says, I go to awaking him from the sleep. Now the disciples, you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, they don't understand because in verse 12, they say, the disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. See, they don't understand what Jesus meant by him being asleep. Now, this, this term sleep is not an unusual term. It's used in multiple places throughout the scripture, the Old Testament and in the New Testament. If you'll see about the kings of Israel, it says, king such and such slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers. What does that mean? Well, it means he died. That's what it means. And we're told that um, later in the New Testament, Paul refers to the saints sleeping, right? And for example, those who abuse the Lord's table, he talks about sometimes God's judgment is Some of you are sick and others of you sleep, meaning you've died. So that term sleeping is a term, sort of a euphemism for death. You know, what's interesting here is that the grave for the wicked could be seen as a prison for those awaiting execution. But for the godly, for us who believe in Jesus, it's referred to in scripture as like a, a quiet sleep, a sleep. And awaiting a glorious day to come. Now, verse 14, Jesus plainly says, Lazarus is dead. And uh, you know what he says in verse 15, which goes to show he, he deliberately delayed 
Because look what Jesus said in verse 15. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. So let us go to him. So Jesus is saying, for your sakes, for my, your, his disciples, it was a good thing that I wasn't there because you're going to see something amazing. So raising a man from the dead is obviously a way to strengthen people's faith, is it not? More than it would be as incredible as it was to heal a lame man and to heal a blind man from birth, to raise someone from the dead. Um, it would build your faith to see something that spectacular. Now, Jesus says, it's not for, uh, <clears throat> it's for their sakes that I've delayed. So by the time that Jesus arrives outside Bethany, Lazarus has now been dead for four days. And um, since there were, since Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem, our text says that there were many Jews that came out to Mary and Martha's house to console the sisters who were, who were weeping almost uncontrollably over the death of their beloved brother Lazarus. And so these Jews had come out to console the sisters. And it's significant, we're going to see later on the text, that it says many of these Jews came out. Why? Jesus wanted them there. Jesus wanted these Jews there to witness what he was about to do. And John mentions that it was the fourth day. Why do he, he could have said other things. Well, he's dead. But he mentions the fourth day because of the magnitude. There's no question that Lazarus is dead. He's been dead four days. And we're going to see later in the text that... Uh, I was trying to do some medical studies on that. <laughs> Apparently on the fourth day, the, the rotting of the corpse is more pronounced. So there's a reason I think the Apostle John says the fourth day, and, and Martha will make reference to the fourth day because there's not going to be any question that this man was dead. And so Martha in verse 21 was coming out, went out to meet him. Mary is still at the house weeping. Jews are there trying to console Mary. And, and in one sense, it's kind of a contrast between the two sisters. I already said some have speculated uh, Martha was more active and things uh, Mary more contemplative. After all, it was Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus, wanting to soak up the master's teaching. And uh, what Jesus will find, uh, he will find the two sisters virtually overwhelmed in grief when he arrives. But Jesus will engage in a conversation with Martha outside the village first. And again, in verse 21, we find that Martha says, Jesus, if you had been there, our brother would not have died. Now, in looking at that, I don't think necessarily we can interpret that Martha was angry towards Jesus or resentful uh, towards Jesus necessarily. Um, after all, she didn't know why Jesus would be delaying. She didn't know. It was a long journey, by the way, that Jesus and his disciples were making. That's why Martha sent out messengers to, to, to let Jesus know as soon as possible that Lazarus was sick. I think the best way to, to view it is it was simply an expression of grief on Martha's part. If you hadn't, if you'd been there, he wouldn't have died. And they're so upset with the death of their brother. And, uh, and she says, notice what Martha says in verse 22. She says, I know that whatever you ask, God will grant you. So she has this faith in Jesus. And 
Notice Jesus' reply to her in verse 23. He said, your brother will rise again. And Martha says in verse 24, oh, I know that he will rise again. On the last day, he'll rise. You know, this notion of... um, rising from the dead or the resurrection of the dead. Uh, It's a great theme in the scriptures. Uh, In the Old Testament, in fact, one of the greatest statements that people in the Old Testament believed in a resurrection of the dead, I want you to turn to Job 19 for a moment. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Now, Job is recognized as probably one of the oldest books, if not the oldest book in the Old Testament. So here's Job's testimony in verse 25. And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, from my flesh, I shall see God. And most have understood that Job understood of a resurrection yet to come. David understood that in in Psalm 16. But I want you to turn over to Daniel for a moment. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Let me start at verse 1 and read through verse 2. Now at the time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until the time, and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake there these to everlasting life but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt so even daniel prophesied of a coming day of resurrection a general resurrection where both the righteous and the wicked will be raised at the same time i know jess is it's just interesting how often what he preaches in the morning coincides with what is preached in the evening. But <clears throat> a general resurrection where Jesus raises up everybody when he comes back. So everybody's going to be there on that last day of judgment. Some to everlasting life and others to everlasting destruction. So <clears throat> Jesus' response to Martha in verses 25 and 26 has got to be one of the most blessed, comforting, theological truths in all of the word of God. Here's one of the great, one of the seven great I am statements of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. The prince of life is the conqueror of death. Jesus is the fountain of every believer's glorious resurrection and their everlasting life. You know, brethren, we, I don't know if we, we need to think about that more often. We need to be thinking about, in fact, 1 John 3 says, everybody who contemplates on that day of, of beholding Jesus with their own eyes, purifies themselves, purify their souls as they understand the significance of eternal life with Christ. Now, here's the thing. Physical death is not the end all, is it? It's not the great tragedy. It really isn't. 
in one sense. Now, it's not like the unbelievers. Here's the reality of unbelievers. Unbelievers seek to, they, they seek to cling to this life with such great tenacity. And they oftentimes, they fear death. I know Joe used to talk about, knew of a man in Texas who would put toothpicks in his eyes at night to sleep because he was so afraid that he might die during the sleep. Just think about that. And they, 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 they want this life because you see, for the unbeliever, this veil of tears, which is what the Bible calls our life, this veil of tears, that's all they've got. And, and Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, when they perish, everything that they have perishes with them. And they, uh, their great wealth perishes with them. They don't know who's going to get their wealth. And this is, this is all that they have. And people will, they will spend their life savings just to get a few more months once the doctor says, you've got incurable cancer. I grew up next door neighbors to our house in Tennessee. Later on, the, the, the mother, uh, she will die of cancer. And, and it kind of broke my heart to hear that her husband spent an enormous amount of savings, spent all their savings, hundreds of thousands of dollars, try to buy a few more months, but she'll end up dying. People, that's all that they have. That's the unbeliever. But you see, for the believer, what is death? Death ushers in eternal glory for us, does it not? When I was in Corpus Christi in our mission work there several years ago, this was the first time I ever had, and I'm going to call this, a privilege to watch a Christian die. One of the uh, families that was in the church, Charlie Marks, um, Christopher, uh, Chris Mar Christopher Marks' father, and Jennifer Martinez married Christopher Marks. Charlie Marks was part of our mission work. He was a dear, dear brother. <clears throat> Ten years earlier, he, had, he was the only survivor of, of cancer with all the others because he did a different route. He went 10 years. But 10 years later, it caught up with him. And uh, he'll end up having a, a melanoma in his back. I remember feeling it. And I said, that's, that's not good, Charlie. And uh, when he got it tested, it had metastatized. And it had come back. He had actually got, get this, if you can go 10 years in remission, then you're declared healed. And the, the Cancer Institute in Houston, I forget the name right off, but he had just in December been declared healed of his cancer, only in January to see this come back. And by April, he's gone. But what I mean is to see the difference between watching, he decided... He would want to spend his last days at home uh, <clears throat> with his wife. And so near the end, as he was declining, I remember a couple days before, uh, he was going in, out of uh, unconscious. He was unconscious for the longest time. I wanted to go see him. And uh, to go in, he'd been unconscious for hours upon hours. And his wife says, Charlie, John's here. And it's like, oh, I think I'll come back. <laughs> and he comes back and is very cognitive. We had a wonderful conversation. His family kept saying, Charlie, you don't need to hang on anymore. Just go on to your reward. You, you, we, we've all said goodbye, so why are you fighting this? <laughs> and I had the most wonderful time watching this dear Christian brother die. Now, I had to leave the room to go out and just weep. But it was a privilege to see how a Christian faced death. You know, what follows here 
Mary and Martha said, Lord, if you only had been here, he wouldn't have died. You know what follows in verse 33 and and following is, well, it's one of the most glorious things because it says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. Look what it says. Verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, talking about Mary, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now what's interesting there is that this being troubled, this word can be translated at times as snorting, indignation, anger. And so in one sense, there was um, an anger of what was happening to his good friend, Lazarus. And so what Jesus, I think what we can see here, he, there's, this, there's this indignation And yet there's this great sympathy for Mary and Martha. When God created an Adam and Eve, what was the the intention? To live forever, right? As long as you don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and, and evil, you'll be fine. But the day you eat of that tree, you will die. Both, you may not die right then physically, but you will die spiritually right then, and then eventually you will physically die. And so what happens is sin and death, <clears throat> sin, the death is the result of man's sin. The wages of sin is death, the scripture says. And in here's in, in the reality, sin and death it rips man apart from the very essence of his being. See, we are created as a body and as a soul together. That's how we were created. That's how we were meant to live. And what happens at death is that it just violently just rips this apart, the soul from the body. This is why, in, in one sense, we like to talk about the natural realm of dying, but in one sense, there's nothing natural about, about death. Because I said, it rips man apart at the very essence of his being. You know, this is why Ephesians 4, verse 30, and Romans eight twenty three refers to our groaning, waiting for the redemption of our body. You know, the Bible talks about redemption. It talks about redemption in twofold sense. It talks about the redemption of our soul, and then it, which happens at our rebirth spiritually, and then there is a redemption of our body when Jesus comes back. Ephesians 1 talks about this. So in one sense, man's redemption is not totally complete until they're both brought back together in a perfected state. You know, our confession brings this out, that in Jesus Christ, we have gained far more in Jesus than we ever lost with Adam. Because guess what? You and I, we cannot lose our salvation. We, uh, we cannot lose that perfected state. Adam and Eve were perfect, but they had the propensity to change, which they did. You know, in glory, guess what? There is no possibility of us ever changing from a glorious state. How wonderful that is. Contemplate on that, why don't you? And that'll thrill your soul. You know, there is a... Um, There is a, um, Jesus said, when he told Martha, 
He said, your, your, your brother will rise again. Well, yeah, yeah, he'll rise again on that last day. I, I, want, to, I want us to turn back to John 5, verse 24 through 28 for a moment. Because when Jesus says, I don't, John 5, 24 through 28. But Jesus said to Martha, he said, Martha, <clears throat> I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even though he were dead. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, let's take a look at John 5, 25, 24 through 28. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even as he gave to the Son also has life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did to the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Remember, that's what Daniel said. There are two aspects, two aspects of this. Even if you die, you are going to live again one day. You're going to be raised from the dead one day. But first, you're going to have a spiritual resurrection before you rise from the tomb. Revelation 20 talks about this as well. You know, later Paul, Paul said the same thing, did he not? Turn over to, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for a moment. First Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. There you see, there's that term asleep, meaning dead. That you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, that's the, the non-Christian world. They have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus for this way to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive shall remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, thus we shall always be with the Lord. And what's the application? Verse 18, comfort one another with these words. And so when, when Jesus told her that he was going to raise her from the dead, raise Lazarus from the dead, Martha, do you believe this? Do you really believe it? So Jesus wants to know, where have you laid him? Back to John 11. He says, where, where, where have you laid him? They show him the tomb. And um, then we have verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Oh, that may be the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's got to be one of the most profound verses in the Bible. Jesus wept like Mary and Martha were weeping. In fact, we're told that in verse 36, the Jews were saying, behold, 
how he loved him. They saw that that response of Jesus was because he loved Lazarus so much. And he, in his humanity, was grieved over the death of his friend. Now, what we see here, the Bible teaches that in Jesus, he is the God-man. He is truly God, and he is truly man in the same person forever. Jesus was a real human being. And as Hebrews 4 tells us, and we ought to take comfort in that, is that Jesus knows about and sympathizes with us because he knows what it's like to be a human. And so when he, he understands, what does he understand? Well, he knows what hunger is because he was hungry. He knows that he needed sleep and he was sleepy at times. He needed sleep. He knew what pain was. He knew what temptation was. He knows what it's like to be tempted, yet without sin, but he understands. He knows all of our heartaches. And he, he looks at Mary and Martha just weeping over the loss of their brother. And in his humanity, he just breaks down with the same grief of what, look what sin has done. Look at the tra what it brings, death. You know, Jesus says, <clears throat> he, he tells some, he says in verse 39, remove the stone. Now, he was buried in a cave and they covered with a stone, just like when Jesus was buried. It was in a tomb and they put a stone and the Roman guards over it. So there was a stone guarding the cave and he says, remove the stone. Well, what, in verse 39, what was Martha's response? Look what, look, look what she said. Martha, the sister of the deceased said, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead four days. See, I think, again, that's John wants to drive home the point. He is dead, and he's been dead four days to the point that his body is beginning to decompose and give off this nasty scent when bodies decompose. So they remove the stone, and then Jesus says, he says to Martha, when she says, there's going to be a stench, Jesus, and Jesus says, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you're going to see the glory of God? And as they removed the stone, he raised his eyes up and he prayed. He prayed audibly so that everybody could hear him pray, especially the Jews who had come out to console Mary and Martha. Because look what he, what he says. Verse 41, Father, I thank thee that thou heard me and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people standing around, I said that they may believe that thou didst send me. And you see, that confirms without a shadow of a doubt Jesus deliberately delayed not going to Bethany, waiting for Lazarus to die because he wanted not only his disciples to know he is the Christ, for Mary and Martha to build their faith, but to the, all these Jews who had came out, he wanted them to see this incredible miracle. And what was the purpose of, of these miracles as signs? Jesus is the Christ. That's the purpose. So that's why Jesus audibly prayed so that th they would hear. And then in verse 43, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
bound in his clothes, comes walking out of this tomb. And Jesus says, unwrap him and let him go. Now just, just picture for a moment, you're, you're, you're watching this. You hear Jesus pray, you hear him shout, come forth, Lazarus. And then this body who's been dead for four days comes walking out. <sighs> is, is this real? You bet it's real. I am the resurrection and the life. You know, here, you know what's, as, I've, as I was studying this passage, you know what I find interesting? Have you ever heard people say, well, so-and-so died and went to heaven and came back? You hear people uh, tell those stories of what it was like? Well, what was it like in heaven? Well, most of the time, just forget all that, you know. Most of it's just coming back that way. But, you know, the Bible never said, here is someone who actually went to glory and came back. And yet the Bible never says anything of anything that Lazarus did. Now, later on, we're going to see when Lisa, uh, Jesus comes back through Bethany, he comes back to their home and has dinner and Lazarus is at the table. Now, can you maybe imagine that maybe the discussion that could have gone on, but the Bible doesn't even mention it. Never mentions, here was a man actually went to glory and came back. I just think that's kind of a little interesting that nothing is ever said about that. Well, what was the impact of the miracle? Well, verse 45 Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. It had its designed effect on many, but there were some, it meant nothing. And it says, verse 46, that word but, but, some, went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And it was not favorable why they went away. So you think there for a moment, someone the other day just asked me, he says, how is it that some people can see miracles and then it doesn't even phase them? How is it that people crossed the Red Sea, saw it open up, and God feed them manna from heaven, gave them water in a desert, their shoes wouldn't wear out for a while? And, you, and then the, yet the Bible says most of those did not believe. And you go, and then, and, and then Jesus, remember, he, he rebukes the Jews. He says, well, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. Well, I did tell you. He says, but you just didn't believe me. Remember, spiritual truth has to be revealed. You can't figure it out logically as such. It must be revealed. And for some, well, you know, Jesus later on in Luke 16, we'll talk about in this story of another man named Lazarus who died in the rich man and the rich man's in hell, and he wants uh, some to go tell his brothers lest they come to this place of torment. And they said, and then Jesus in the parable says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. No, 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 no. If a man were to, look it up for yourself, if a man were to rise from the dead, they will believe. And what was Jesus' statement? no. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if a man rises from the dead. So unless you are born again from above, remember 
Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you got to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. You know, this is a favorite passage. There's not a there's not a funeral or memorial service that I do that I don't bring up this passage. And the last time was my was my great was my aunt Lola, who found the diary of my great our great great grandfather. And so when we buried her in Wisconsin, have the service inside, then we had a graveside service. And there is her, is her tomb, there's her gravestone. Over to the left is the gravestones of my mother and father. Other part of the cemetery there is, is the great-great-grandfather, William Otis, who wrote that diary. And you know what's on his tombstone when you go over and look at it? It's 2 Timothy 4.8. I have fought the good fight, and now is laid up for me a crown. That's on his tombstone. He probably told people ahead of time to put that on his tombstone. And I said, one day, these graves are going to open up on a glorious day and this body will be united with the soul that's already been with Jesus. And it will be finally, on that day, body and soul reunited forever for glory in heaven, never to be lost ever again. Comfort one another with these words, Paul says. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that these are not just wishful thinking, that it's, it's the real deal. It's the real thing, O oh Lord. And we, we know in whom we have believed And that's why we love Jesus so much, what he has done for us. And we long to see that day when we can look at the scar, we can see him in his resurrected body, and we can see the scars, because Jesus, they're going to be there on his hands, on his feet. And we we will see what it took to redeem us. Oh, what a glorious day that's going to be. Have us to, help us to think about it often. We ask for Jesus' sake, amen.